Please stand for the reading of the Old Testament lesson. Today taken from Daniel chapter 4, verses 19 through 37. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the words were fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven 
till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the on- and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Shall we pray? Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. New Testament lesson is taken from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the, the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. King Nebuchadnezzar has had a second terrifying dream. And once again, his court magicians and his wise men cannot interpret that dream. Greatly troubled, the Babylonian king summons his Hebrew servant Daniel to interpret this dream which has disrupted the king's life of relative ease and comfort. And Daniel's going to reveal that the unsettling circumstances foretold in Nebuchadnezzar's previous dream are about to come to pass. Now in that prior dream, as we saw in Daniel 2, the king saw a frightening metallic statue with a head of gold that represented the king and his empire. But that kingdom will fall before a series of empires yet to follow. Nebuchadnezzar and his vast kingdom will come to an end. 
replaced by a Persian empire that even then was beginning to rise to power. And although Nebuchadnezzar remains convinced that his kingdom is mighty and it stands as a testimony to his own accomplishments and his own greatness, as a consequence of these two dreams, the king is beginning to realize that his kingdom is no match for Yahweh's. Yahweh rules all the kingdoms of the earth from heaven. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is eternal. And none of that can be said of any earthly kingdom, including Nebuchadnezzar's. As we continue our series on the book of Daniel, we pick up where we left off last time with verse 19 of Daniel chapter 4, when the king had had another troubling dream and then summoned his Hebrew prophet Daniel to interpret the dream for him. Now, ironically, it's Daniel who is a believing Jew who, in gaining favor with the king after interpreting his first dream successfully, it was Daniel who was appointed prefect over Nebuchadnezzar's pagan court magicians. And the king's court magicians fail again, and so it falls to Daniel to explain to the king what this second dream foretold. Events which Nebuchadnezzar probably suspected based on his previous terrifying dream years before, yet which now brought him to the breaking point. Now, as we saw last time, ideally this passage, Daniel 4, which is Nebuchadnezzar's last appearance in the book of Daniel, is best treated in one sermon to fully unpack its uh, contents. But the tyranny of time does not allow us the luxury of doing that. So since this is a part two sermon in a sense, I'll briefly recap the ground we covered last time before we turn to the balance of our text this morning, which is the rest of Daniel chapter 4. Now the scene described in Daniel 4 comes late in Nebuchadnezzar's life and his 42 plus year uh, career, likely at some point after his prolonged military campaigns in both the province of Judah and against the city of Tyre, yet before his final campaign against Egypt and in his death in 562. Remarkably, chapter 4 contains a first-person account from the king himself in the form of a letter about this second dream and about his subsequent break with reality, followed by his equally dramatic restoration. The king has witnessed Yahweh's power and Yahweh's sovereign hand enough to willingly confess that Yahweh is the Most High. Uh, Verse 1 of this chapter. It is Yahweh, the king says, who is all-powerful, as we'll see in verse 35. And it's Yahweh whose kingdom will never end, as Nebuchadnezzar himself tells us in verse 3 and verse 34. Yet sadly, Nebuchadnezzar never confesses his sins, nor repents of them, or even acknowledges that he's a sinner. He never rejects the pagan gods of Babylon, even though he's forced to admit that Daniel's god, Yahweh, is much more powerful than Bel or Marduk, the king's preferred god from among the legion of Babylonian deities. We see in this chapter that Nebuchadnezzar has reached the pinnacle of his career. He has another frightening dream. He suffers a complete mental collapse as foretold in that dream, and then his sanity is restored. And all of this is Yahweh's doing. Now, the reason for Daniel's inclusion of this first-person account from the king, including his acknowledgement, his reluctant acknowledgement of Yahweh as greater than his own gods, as well as the king's recounting of his serious mental illness, the purpose is to remind and comfort the Jewish exiles, people who've already been forcibly taken from their homes in Judah and now find themselves living under Nebuchadnezzar's heavy hand in Babylon. This is a reminder to them that Yahweh is sovereign over all things. 
Yahweh has used King Nebuchadnezzar and his empire to bring judgment upon disobedient Israel. And since Yahweh is sovereign over all things, not Nebuchadnezzar, God's promises to the Jewish exiles still stand. When their 70 years of exile are over, Yahweh will ensure that they're released from bondage and they'll return home to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and its temple. So this is much more than a simple recounting of the king's mental breakdown and restoration. The critical point is that Yahweh keeps his promises to his people. He is Nebuchadnezzar's Lord, an important and encouraging point for those hearing Daniel's prophecy to realize. They may be living under the hand of a tyrant, but that tyrant is no match for Yahweh, and he loses his sanity as a consequence of his arrogance and his boasting. So as we turn to our text this morning, verses 19 through 37 of Daniel 4, we pick up after Nebuchadnezzar recounts the details of the second dream to Daniel in verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's Babylonian name, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Now, echoing the words of Pharaoh to Joseph from the Joseph story in Genesis 37 to 50, the king acknowledges that Yahweh's spirit indwells this Hebrew prophet. And that's why Daniel is Yahweh's prophet who can interpret these dreams while the king's magician have no clue as to what they mean. And we should immediately notice in this section that Daniel was reluctant to interpret the dream for the king. The reason why is that Daniel knows that the dream is going to remind the king of Yahweh's former revelation that judgment will fall upon Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. Recall the vision of the metallic statue being crushed by a rock made without human hands, which is Christ's kingdom. Daniel knows that the king is a tyrannical ruler who doesn't respond very well to bad news. Uh, In this case, the worst possible news. And Daniel and his friends have barely escaped death several times before, so Daniel knows the same thing might just happen again. So it's no wonder that we read in verse 19... Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream and the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. Well, skilled in the ways of the court, and with the gift of divine wisdom that had been given him by Yahweh, Daniel demonstrates his loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar first as a servant, before interpreting the dream. Now, reassured by the king that his servant's not going to be harmed, Daniel begins by recounting the details of the dream to the king in verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Well, Daniel recounts the dream with several minor alterations, but he does defer to the king's greatness. It's you, O king. It's it's your greatness that reaches the heavens. Now, I think it's illustrative when we look at the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 20, which is during the reign of Belshazzar, who is the eldest son of the last king of Babylon and 
one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors after the king is dead and gone. When Daniel reads the mysterious handwriting on the wall, he describes Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom in slightly less positive light than he does here. But when his heart was lifted and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And so out of the king's presence from a later vantage point, the main point of the dream Daniel tells us in chapter 4 is to warn us and to warn the king about his grandiose view of himself and his current cruelty toward the people of God, Judah, whom he's holding in exile. Now Daniel continues to interpret the dream in verse 23. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. Well, once again, Daniel repeats the dream with a couple of minor alterations. Daniel's careful here not to offend the king, yet he doesn't soft-pedal what it was that Yahweh revealed to him about the king's dream. Daniel omits the details of the tree's destruction. That's kind of obvious to the person who had the dream, as well as the king's severe mental break, simply telling him that he'll have his portion with the beast for a time, a divinely appointed period of time, in fact, seven periods of time, probably not seven years, but symbolic of the completion of the time of God's judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar. And so with the recounting of the content of the dream complete, Daniel now gives Nebuchadnezzar the divinely revealed interpretation of the dream. And so beginning in verse 24, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king. Well, Daniel tells the king flat out that Yahweh is sovereign over both the king as well as the dream and its details. It is Yahweh who sends the watchers, the angels, who go out to the ends of the earth to do what it is that Yahweh commands them to do. This is yet another very powerful blow to the king's massive ego and overestimation of his power and the greatness of his kingdom, which is great, no doubt, in terms of worldly power, but completely insignificant in the face of Yahweh's power and Yahweh's decree. The watchers will come down and put into motion Yahweh's previously hidden divine decree that now will play out on the stage of human history. And Yahweh has decreed for the king the fate spelled out in verses 25 to 27. This is not a message that Nebuchadnezzar wants to hear, especially recall at a time in his life when he's living the life of a king. He's at a time of ease and comfort with a long list of accomplishments. But this is a warning Yahweh sends him through the dream. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be confirmed for you from the time you know that heaven rules. The king is going to come under Yahweh's judgment. 
He's going to lose his sanity. He's going to live among the beasts. He's going to eat grass like an animal. Now, that delusional state will go on until the king once again acknowledges Yahweh's sovereign will and majesty, this seven periods of time. The king rules over Babylon only because Yahweh wills it. The king will come under Yahweh's judgment for as long as Yahweh sees fit. And Yahweh requires that Nebuchadnezzar admit that the king of heaven rules, not Nebuchadnezzar or his earthly kingdom. And once he does, all will be restored to him. Now, although God's rule is from heaven, it is God who directs, controls, and establishes the kingdoms of this world to serve his purposes. As one writer puts it, God rules down here, not merely up there. It was in the kingdom of men that he wanted his will done, specifically in Babylon. Yahweh's kingdom extends to the ends of the earth. It is he who directs Babylon to execute judgment upon disobedient Israel. But it's Yahweh who also brings judgment on Babylon and its king for refusing to bow the knee to Yahweh after being shown Yahweh's might and power so many times. Now, usually it's kings who tell their subjects what to do, but Nebuchadnezzar now learns that he too is a subject. He's a subject of Yahweh, and he must do as Yahweh commands. And so Daniel, this Hebrew prophet standing before the king in his court, exhorts the king to repent and seek Yahweh's favor, much like the prophets whom Yahweh sent to his people in Israel had done in calling for repentance. This is Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, O king... Let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Whoa. Daniel is speaking as Yahweh's prophet to a pagan king. He's weighing his words carefully so as not to show that he's haughty or disrespectful. But nevertheless, he is commanding as Yahweh's spokesman that the king repent of his sin, specifically his iniquities. And once having done so, the king is to demonstrate the fruit of repentance by living righteously, obeying the commandments of God, specifically in this case by showing mercy to his subjects, showing mercy to all those captive exiles then living under the king's heavy hand. Now, this is the pattern of salvation we find throughout the scriptures. The law of God condemns us before God because it shows us our sin and our need of a Savior. When we measure our own obedience against the law of God, when we we check to see how we're actually doing at obeying the commandments, we realize that we haven't obeyed God's commands perfectly, not even slightly. We realize that we need a Savior from the guilt and the power of sin. And we come to faith in God's covenant promise that He will forgive iniquity, That's the Old Testament sense. But in the New, faith is always directed to the person and saving work of Jesus Christ. And then we do those good works, which are a fruit of genuine faith. And should Nebuchadnezzar do these things, it would be a sign that he believed God's promise and that he'd come to realize his lowly position in life before God. All of us, even kings and queens and presidents, are beggars before God. None of us can make any claim upon him. And Daniel reminds the king of this very fact when he tells him, look, if you do this, God will prolong your days. The evidence tells us, sadly, that Nebuchadnezzar never did any of these things. 
as the events foretold in the dream will come to pass, exactly as we see in verse 28. So a year goes by. Yahweh's given Nebuchadnezzar plenty of time to repent and heed his warning. The king is still in Babylon, in residence in his royal palace. But there's no change in the king's thinking or attitude. And so Daniel tells us all of this, that is everything foretold in the dream of the previous year, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And so in verses 29 through 32, Daniel recounts how, at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof at the royal palace in Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Yahweh's warned the king through a dream, and now he speaks to the king directly, only this time it's to pronounce judgment. Now, despite Yahweh's dream, pointing the king, warning the king of what's to come, and despite sending Daniel as a preacher of righteousness and repentance, Nebuchadnezzar's not repented. And the next year finds him back in the palace, the same place where he's had the two dreams, walking on the roof, arrogantly boasting about all of his accomplishments and his own greatness. And Babylon was indeed a great city during this time. Anyone who's ever been to the Bergama Museum in Berlin and you've seen the mosaics of the lions and the antelopes and the griffins and these blue mosaic walls of the Ishtar Gate, it's, it's a magnificent city. The city was home then to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the, the hanging gardens that the king had built for his wife, Amatesis. And his musing and his own, about his own greatness reveals that despite Yahweh's warnings, Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't get it. Yahweh is king of kings and lord of lords, not Nebuchadnezzar. And so with Yahweh pronouncing judgment upon the king, the results are swift, debilitating, and for someone like Nebuchadnezzar, completely humiliating. We read in verse 33 that immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. And his nails were like a bird's claws. You know, banishment was not only the original punishment for human arrogance. We think about the fall of our race as recounted in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. But it's also a very common biblical form of punishment. We see this in God's judgment upon Israel when the northern kingdom had been defeated and then captured by the Assyrians. We see this in Judah. Because of idolatry and unbelief, this led God to judge Judah by sending Nebuchadnezzar of all people. And all those people reading Daniel's prophecy are exiles because of God's judgment upon their nation. And they're banished from the land for a time, 70 years. And Jesus warned Israel, of possible banishment yet again when in Holy Week, Easter Week, in the Olivet Discourse, Mark 24, Matthew 13, Jesus gave a warning to Israel that you'll be banished from the land, which was fulfilled in AD 70 when the Jews were dispersed to the four corners of the earth by the Romans. 
And that same banishment judgment now falls on Nebuchadnezzar, who after the long-suffering patience and repeated revelation from Yahweh continued to speak as though, I'm quoting one commentator, he were the eternal God and God did not exist. And so the king mentally snaps. He lives the life of a beast. Long unkempt hair, uncut nails, eating grass. Sounds kind of like Howard Hughes. The nature of Nebuchadnezzar's illness produced a whole lot of speculation across the centuries, with one influential commentator on Daniel concluding that the king suffered from lycanthropy, which is a disease thought to be tied to hypo, um, hydrophobia, a fear of water that people are thought to display symptoms similar to dogs and wolves with, rabbi, uh, with rabies. And of course, lycanthropy as an illness is what gave rise to werewolf legends that are now so popular in film and novel. But I think it's useless to speculate about the exact nature of the king's illness except to say that his condition is a direct result of God's immediate judgment. It's clear from this account that it is far better to heed Yahweh's warning, in this case his repeated warnings, than it is to mock God by acting as though he didn't exist and as though your kingdom is your doing, even after all that Nebuchadnezzar had been shown that demonstrated otherwise. In this episode, we really learn something about ourselves. We see how deeply and completely sin resides in the human heart, including our own, so that even after repeated revelations and warnings, like Nebuchadnezzar, we still refuse to humble ourselves and repent. Because unless the Holy Spirit opens our hearts and grants us faith in its fruit, repentance, we're all just like Nebuchadnezzar but thankfully with much less geopolitical power and with common grace institutions within the civil kingdom controlling our evil impulses, things like jails and police and courts. Well, now the king is going to suffer in this deplorable state as long as God wills it. The exact period of time is not specified other than seven periods of time, however long that is. But we're told in the verse that at some point when Yahweh's judgment had run its course, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. Yahweh's judgment upon the king had been lifted. Immediately his sanity is returned to him. And his first act, once his sanity has been restored, is to acknowledge Yahweh as sovereign Lord, whose kingdom alone is without end. And so Nebuchadnezzar tells us, And I bless the Most High, and praise and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is going to end. The king is going to eventually die, as do all the children of Adam. But Yahweh and his kingdom are eternal. Finally, the king grasps the very thing that Yahweh has been communicating to him over and over and over again. It is Yahweh who is sovereign over all things. It is Yahweh alone who is without beginning or end. Nebuchadnezzar is a king. He has a powerful kingdom, humanly speaking, but he's subject to Yahweh's will. And like all human kingdoms, Babylon's going to become a footnote to human history. And the great city, well, you have to go to Berlin and look at it in a museum. Praising Yahweh as sovereign king and lord is something Nebuchadnezzar has been forced to do. After his time of living with the beasts and eating grass, the king finally clicks And he gets the corollary of confessing Yahweh as Lord. If Yahweh is sovereign, then that means that the king is not. 
And he states in verse 35 that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar finally gets and confesses what so many people in our world will never get or cannot confess. Sadly, even many professing Christians. Namely that if we are but creatures who are born at a particular time and place to particular parents and possess a unique physical appearance and unique DNA all determined by Yahweh, then who among us can stay his hand? Who among us can overturn or thwart or disrupt God, uh, Yahweh's will? Not one of Adam's race. Why? Because we're but creatures, sinful creatures at that. And so Nebuchadnezzar brings this testimony, this letter to a close in verse 36 to 37 with words of praise for Yahweh, whom he calls the king of heaven, who he says always acts righteously. Yet the letter falls far short of confessing his sins and trusting in Yahweh's covenant promise. And he doesn't repent, apparently, to do any of the things that Yahweh commanded him through Daniel. But the king does say, At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom... My majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the King of heaven, for all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he's able to humble. Well, driven to insanity by Yahweh's hand of judgment, the king acknowledges what his Jewish subjects in exile have known all along, that Yahweh is the true and living and sovereign God, sovereign over all things. What the king fails to acknowledge is what those believers in Yahweh's promise in Israel confess, that Yahweh is a merciful God who forgives sin and promises a heavenly inheritance to all his people. And sadly, that confession is not found on Nebuchadnezzar's lips. Well, what then do we take with us from this remarkable account of Nebuchadnezzar's second dream? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's acknowledgement that Yahweh is Lord of all is quite remarkable, really. It comes after Nebuchadnezzar understands God's judgment. The great king's been humbled. He's had a breakthrough in understanding his place before God. And he understands finally that his kingdom is not as great or as mighty as he thinks it is. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar confesses of Yahweh. All his works are right, his ways just. But the words... Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, are not found on his lips. Now, when we compare the king's attitude, even after being forcibly humbled by Yahweh, to that of the true king of kings' attitude towards suffering and obedience to God's will, well then, our application comes into view. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, part of our New Testament lesson, Paul gives us this amazing description of Jesus' attitude toward Yahweh and his messianic mission and the suffering and obedience that it required. It's Jesus, through Paul, who tells us, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if anyone could boast of unlimited power and unsurpassed authority, it is our Lord Jesus. Yet he humbles himself, even to death on a cross. And ironically, he conquers kingdoms just like Nebuchadnezzar's by suffering and dying and obeying God's will, not by coercive force or the use of the sword. In doing this, Paul says, Jesus becomes our example of true humility, as well as our Savior. It is Jesus, not any earthly king, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Ciro, not any king, who is truly the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one, Jesus, before whom all of the Nebuchadnezzars of this world are going to bow, and they'll all confess Jesus' majesty to the glory of God the Father. Amen.